Good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Nicola Lacey uh, from the Law Department here at LSE, and it's my huge pleasure not only to welcome you, but principally to introduce one of the LSE Law Department's most distinguished former students, Hilary Mantel. It's really impossible to conceive of anyone better qualified to open a series of lectures designed to remind us that a law degree can lead to things other than a career in legal practice. Hilary Mantel was born in Derbyshire and grew up in the northwest of England. She was educated at a convent grammar school and read law here at LSE and then at Sheffield, originally intending to become a barrister. In the event, ill health forced her to change her path and the law's loss was English literature's gain. 35 years after she began work on her first book, she stands as one of the preeminent writers of contemporary English literary fiction. The author of 12 books whose distinction has been recognized in a steady flow of prizes, including the Winifred Holtby Memorial Prize for Flood, the Hawthornden Prize for An Experiment in Love, and of course, most recently, the prestigious Man Booker Prize for Wolf Hall, her compelling novel about Thomas Cromwell. She was awarded a CBE in 2006. It's really easy to understand how Hilary Mantel has come to occupy her present position of great stature. She's a writer of remarkable versatility, one who seems equally at home amid ambitious historical narratives, contemporary landscapes, memoirs, and short stories, as well as her being a distinguished essayist and reviewer. She combines a gritty realism with an interest in supernatural regions of experience, which lie in the title of one of her, one of my favorite novels, Beyond Black. And her keen sensibility for the cadences of language make one think that she might have had an equally successful career as a poet. Unusual in her willingness to ponder the shaping force of her life on her literature, she's written movingly of her difficult childhood and her experience of illness. But her sense of humor is never far behind, as in her wry comment on one occasion that the good thing about being a writer is that you take your bad experiences and make them pay. On the back of Wolf Hall, uh, Diana Atthill compares the book with George Eliot's towering creation, Middlemarch. The comparison is in every way apt. Hilary Mantel combines a playful wit, a mordant humor, a penetrating eye, and a luminous intelligence with an encompassing human sympathy which brings even her most astringent characters alive to us as thinking, feeling beings. Indeed, she's described the purpose of fiction as expanding our sympathies, a defining aspiration, of course, for Eliot too. Moreover, Mantel combines intensely psychological characterization with a panoptic and meticulously researched vision of the social world in which her characters move. Remote as that world is from our own, Hilary Mantel's Cromwell is a man whose concerns and feelings are entirely legible 
to the modern reader. Closer to home, Mantel has written affectionately of her time here at LSE, describing her university course in her memoir, Giving Up the Ghost, as engrossing, and remembering LSE's cosmopolitan stimulating atmosphere. Whatever foreign event made the news, she said, there was someone who would tell you about it. She also noted that the rattling down at heel overcrowded buildings pleased me better than any grassy quad or lancet window. So Hilary, it's just as well we didn't schedule this lecture in one of our posh new lectures. <laughs> of herself as a seven-year-old child, Mantel has written that I was determined already to distinguish myself in my generation. Rarely can a seven-year-old's determination have been so amply fulfilled. Hilary, welcome back to LSE. We're tremendously grateful for your kindness in fitting this lecture in amid this wonderful, but I'm sure chaotic time for you after winning the Booker. Thank you, and we're looking forward to it. Nicola, thank you for your, your really kind words. It is the first time I've returned. When I was writing my book, An Experiment in Love, which is set partly in this building, I did go to revisit my old hall of residence on Mallet Street, but I didn't need to come back to LSE. All I had to do was close my eyes and conjure up the atmosphere of the foyer. You know, when there were fewer LSE buildings, everyone was much more squashed together. Everything was compacted. And that foyer, at about this time, on a rainy night, would feel for a moment like the eye of the storm, and you were conscious of all the currents of, the, of London and the wider world, swirling about you as, as you walked out into the foyer there. So I haven't been back till now. I came here originally in 1970 when I was 18. I was straight from my convent school in Cheshire. I was the first person in my family to have any higher education. The fact that I could aspire to study law here isn't in any way a simple fact, because it, it seems to me to have a great deal of social history wrapped into it. The women in my family, their various journeys through life, seem to be an echo of the 20th century. My great-grandmother, born in Ireland, was illiterate. My grandmother left school at 14, my mother, uh, I'm sorry, my grandmother left school at 12. My mother left school at 14, and she went to work in, in the mill. And thanks to um, the 44 Education Act and the, the welfare state, I was able to progress through O levels, A levels, on to take a degree, and I've now reached that happy stage in life where I go around with glee snapping up honorary doctorates. <laughs> and, but what happened for me was that I was allowed to make a career using not my hands but my wits. 
There was a huge amount of social change encapsulated in one family story. It hasn't, of course, been smooth progress. I was only here for, at LSE for a year. I completed my degree in Sheffield, but that year is very vivid in my life. Coming here for me, it was like coming into an intellectual paradise because all around me there were people of different ages, of every background, every country in the world, and if something was on the morning news, you could arrive here and people would be talking about it and someone from that part of the world would be able to tell you out of their first-hand experience what would be happening and how it would feel from the inside. What the real inside story was lying behind the news. And I love that. There was a great sense for me of opportunities being presented and of the world as opening out huge range of possibilities. Later I learned that law faculties can be narrow places who produce people tailored to fit a system. But needless to say, LSE wasn't like that. I think at that time there was a great sense of excitement in learning the law and a keen awareness of how the law fitted into a wider society, which I never lost and which I think has informed a great part of my fiction. I was very happy that year in one sense, but outside the classroom life wasn't really very easy for me. And not least it was because I became very conscious as working class students probably still do that I was walking in a direction that my family had never taken and that no one understood where I was heading that I had no money behind me and no connections and no social ease when I was a schoolgirl, I thought perhaps that doesn't matter but I think my first year changed my mind. Um, I think it's common enough. My intellectual functioning uh, and my ambition were far, far ahead of my knowledge of the real world. And I think some doleful facts came home to me that year. But also, some of my great preoccupations arrived inside me. And once they were there, they came to stay. Um, questions about the balance of duties and rights in human life, questions about the letter of the law and the spirit of the law, questions of evidence and interpretation, and questions about what words can do, the way words go to work in the world and change into deeds the magical quality that words take on when, for example, an orator turns a crowd into a mob or a woman takes a marriage vow or a man sits down to draft a law. I have Thomas Cromwell in my latest book say that when you are writing a law, you are testing words to find the utmost they can do. And I suppose that's absolutely true for someone in the trade of novelist as well. I think it's, it's quite common with novelists that some 
preoccupation buries itself and surfaces in fiction years later. And 1970 and my time in the law faculty surfaced in my uh, 1995 novel, An Experiment in Love. I set it quite deliberately in 1970 and the action unfolds over two university terms. Now the main character in the book is called Carmel McBain. Carmel isn't me, but I put her down on the path I'd walked. You see, I've always been parsimonious in my approach to writing novels, and I think, why invent when the truth is free? So why worry yourself trying to work out how old your character is and what's, what's on the news when you can put her down on the, the parameters of your own life? So that's what I did. And much of the action takes place in a woman's hall of residence, which I call Tunbridge Hall, but it's really College Hall on Mallet Street. And Carmel shares my political preoccupations, or the preoccupations I had then, and she is the age I was then. And I never actually name LSE, but I hope that the atmosphere comes through the lines. When I returned to my desk after dinner those evenings at Tunbridge Hall. My foot would ruck up the cotton rug on the polished floor and I would imagine sliding lightly on my back across the room and through the wall, floating out weightless over Bloomsbury. Some evenings I took a spoonful or two of soup, made my apologies, pulled on my coat and sped out again into the autumn evening and I see myself now as if flash an inner camera has caught me forever, hand flung up before a white face, Carmel McBain, on her way to a meeting of the Student Labour Club <laughs> in Drury Lane in the Aldwych. The theatres were opening their doors. A hot little cafe steamed its fumes over the pavements, and I would run up into the, the steps, into my place of work, my palace of wonders, the half-deserted building came with its echo, its ever-burning strip lights, its tar smell of typewriter ribbons and smoke. In the mazes and catacombs, you could sniff out your meeting, guided by your nose towards the dusty scent of composite resolutions, subsections and subclauses, stacking chairs, tobacco, the reek of Afghan coats and flying jackets, the vaporous traces left in the air they inhabit by weak heads and fainter hearts. I don't remember that political philosophy was ever discussed or political issues, only organisation, personalities, how the student labour movement should, should be run. In Paris, the ashes of 1968 were hardly cool. But here in London, we discussed whether to go by coach collectively, or to set out individually to some all-day Saturday students' meeting in some seedy provincial hall, and how much the coach would cost per seat. Whether there should be a joint social evening with the Women's Liberation Group. Mm -hmm. Would that be profitable to both, or end in some ideological and financial disaster? It was men who spoke, not young and fresh ones, but crease-browed and leather-jacketed elders, men with bad teeth, 
from obscure postgraduate specialities. <laughs> they would shuffle or lurch to their feet. And then would come nose rubbing, throat clearing, and then their voices would rumble, just audibly, like thunder in a distant valley. Some would speak slumped in their seats, their eyes fixed on the ceiling, ash dripping from a cigarette. Their manner was weary as if they knew everything and they'd seen everything, and they paused often, perhaps in the middle of the phrase, to blow their noses or make a snickering sound that must have been laughter. Their remarks reached no conclusion. At a certain point, they would become slower and more sporadic and finally peter out. And then another would draw attention to himself with the bare flutter of an agenda in the stale air. And grunting, shrugging, turning down his mouth, begin in the middle of a sentence. Dave and Mike and Phil were their names. Phil and Dave and Mike. Young women carried them drinks from the vending machines, black coffees, frail white shell, hardly dented by their light fingertips. By 10.30, the men would be looking at their watches, drifting and grumbling towards the union bar. I would hover a little in the corners of rooms on the edges of groups, hoping that someone would turn to me and begin a real conversation when I could join in. Stacking chairs squeaked on a dirty floor. The women of the socialists stooped to haul up their fringed and scruffy shoulder bags, and in the bar the women stood in a huddle, excluded by the ramparts of turned shoulders with tepid glasses of pineapple juice clutched in bony white hands. Their eyes avoided mine. They smoked and muttered to each other in code. Disillusioned, I would track back up Drury Lane. The theatres would have turned out already and the stage doors would be barred. An empty Malteser box bowling towards the Thames would bear witness to the evening past. My eyes would be heavy and stinging with cigarette smoke and lack of sleep. And behind my ribs, a weight of disappointment. And they wonder why there are too few women in politics. <laughs> um, didn't see sexual discrimination in evidence in our law tutorials, or at least I, I didn't think so. But there was plenty below stairs in the political meetings. And then later on, when I went to Sheffield, one of our board tutors said to me, frankly, that he didn't see the use of teaching women law because they'd only go off and get married and have children, as if that would disqualify them from civil society. Mm. Now, the girls in my book, the girls at Tunbridge Hall, are grappling for the first time with the idea that they're not just clever machines for passing exams, they're also women. And much of the action of the novel centres on their mutually supportive and sometimes mutually destructive relationships. And throughout the book, Carmel's difficulties tend to be reflected in the various cases she reads. And the central question come, becomes, in that familiar phrase, who then in law is my neighbour? Who then in law is my neighbour? That case, the snail in the ginger beer bottle, I explained. 
Who then in law is my neighbour? The answer seems to be persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation as being so affected when I am directing my mind to the acts or omissions which are called in question. Claire said to me, do you have to learn it like that? <laughs> no, I said, I just prefer to. <laughs> so, I suppose the questions of the book are, who is my neighbour, not just in law, but in justice? What duty of care do I owe to them? How much is it up to me to intervene in other people's lives? And when am I justified in walking away? I wove various cases into my narrative, as well as Donahue and Stevenson. And, you know, my publisher actually thought I'd made them all up. I was shocked at the very idea. And absolutely any point you wish to illustrate as a novelist can be found somewhere in the law reports. But this book, of course, was written many years later with the multiplying ironies of hindsight. I have, however, I've always written about lawyers, right from my first efforts at fiction. Like many people, I became a novelist without any great premeditation. I left LSE after my first year, and I went up to Sheffield thinking I, I might still go into law in some way. But it wasn't a, an easy transition. I'd been absolutely spoiled by the quality of the teaching here. and and by the atmosphere. And joining the law faculty at Sheffield was much more like going back to school, like going back into the sixth form. The, the law faculty was housed on the edge of the campus in a gloomy Victorian building, which was a former maternity home. Um, and the, the, the atmosphere was damp and unenthusiastic. And my two courses fitted together on paper I should have been able to make a smooth transition. But in practice, the students at Sheffield have been sneakily learning real property law for a whole year before I arrived. So I didn't get a fresh start. I found myself a bit lost and a little bit repelled too by, my, um, by the prevailing ethos. It probably sounds priggish now, and probably I didn't understand my fellow students. But mostly they seemed to have a father or an uncle who was a solicitor and they intended to go into the family business. And for them, studying law was all about attaining a certain lifestyle, a solid respectability. And they never asked themselves what the law was for. Um, in my third year then, I undertook to, to study criminology. And I found myself sitting down with sociology students from another part of the campus. And I realized then that although I hadn't known it, I hadn't known it at the time, law had changed the whole way I thought. Because sociology is a discipline. And I do apologize if there are any sociologists in the audience, but it seemed to me impossibly flabby. Um, that there didn't seem to be anything to get a grip on. And I realized something about myself that imprecision bored me and that theories bored me when they were separated from facts or pulled away from utility. You see, I think as you go through the educational process, 
You're pointed towards passing exams and you, you're judged by how efficiently you can do that. But you're not encouraged to work out what type of mind you have and how best you might use it. That's something that comes along a few years later and sometimes it does take you a considerable time to work it out. I'm not sure if there's such a thing as a natural lawyer, but I did begin to understand at that stage that perhaps the law and I were not such a bad fit um, because I was interested in disciplines that impacted on reality. And for better or worse, I wasn't really an abstract thinker at all. Studying law changed the way I wrote too, but I can't say changed it for the better because my prose by the end of three years had become concise, neat, tight, inflexible, and it did a job. And that was all it did. And I had to relearn to write. Um, I had to learn to readmit nuance and ambiguity and all those qualities which are the enemy of the lawyer. When I was a little over a year out of university and working as a saleswoman, I began on what I knew was a very long-term project. The first novel I wrote was called A Place of Greater Safety. And it was a novel about the French Revolution. And it wasn't the first I published. It wasn't published uh, till the 19, uh, until 1992. But actually, it was the work of my 20s. I suddenly found my vocation. I suddenly realized what I was for. But I only seemed to be for writing that novel. I didn't think beyond it to any other novels. It was my vocation, it was my obsession, and it was all about lawyers. It's interesting that on this side of the channel, in, in, in fiction and in drama, when we think about the French Revolution, we always concentrate on the aristocratic victims, um, the ladies with high hair. They're more picturesque. And we know the story through A Tale of Two Cities, and through the Scarlet Pimpernel, where the people are always the mob, this faceless, devouring mouth without conscience or ethics or concern about legality. And I decided early on that it wasn't quite like that, and that the more interesting stories were on the revolutionary side, and that inevitably that meant I was writing about lawyers. Most of the personnel of the revolution were lawyers. And they had to ask themselves, as the revolution progressed, some very fundamental questions about law and justice, and about whether the law should be made the creature of political theory. Of course, one of the most astonishing acts of the revolution was the trial of Louis XVI. And the more honest among the lawyers admitted at the time that it wasn't a legal process. It was a political act. It was a polite assassination, in fact, with the ritual trappings of the law. Saint-Just said, one cannot reign innocently. So Louis was condemned before he walked into the court and a precedent was set for the use of the law as window dressing, as a curtain or blind, 
held up to mask the operation of political will and how that paid off in the 20th century, we're all aware. And the revolutionaries also faced in a country at war with its neighbours, surrounded by hostile entities, beset by sabotage. Questions about national security, about how to deal with internal enemies, hidden enemies. Could you cut short the due process of the law? Could you constitute political courts, intern people on suspicion? Because if you did, what became of your ideal of justice and equality before the law? But if you didn't, and the enemy marched in, what then became of any of your ideals? I think there are questions here that a novelist can approach because we want to know how individuals reconciled their consciences, how the process felt to them from the inside, what it feels in short to be desperate and to try to maintain your ideals when your back is to the wall. A novelist can of course explore it from the psychological as well as the political and legal point of view. But you may ask, when it comes to historical fiction, what are the rules of evidence? Now, I think every author of historical fiction formulates them for, for herself. Um, some people draw the line more strictly than others. I tend to draw it quite tightly about the facts as they are known. In A Place of Greater Safety, my French Revolution book, and again in my new book, Wolf Hall, I stick to real situations, and my characters are real people. But still, there are gaps in the historical record. And then the great question becomes, how much license do you take in filling them in? Well, I try to proffer a version that's plausible and that could be true. So I spend a lot of time making sure that my cast were actually in the places where I put them. And so if I tell you the Duke of Norfolk is talking to the Duke of Suffolk and they're in a chamber at Whitehall, I do my very best to make sure they both were or could have been there and we don't know that one of them was back in Suffolk and the other one was across the channel. And sometimes it seems that the most frustrating part uh, of, of, of a huge novel like Wolf Hall is just keeping tabs on people geographically. If only you could go back into history and radio tag them. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I don't distort the record to serve the drama. I try to wrap the drama around the facts as we have them. And when the record runs out, I'm happiest if I have a little half line of evidence, of documentary evidence, to build my characters and situations with. Now, Wolf Hall is about Thomas Cromwell, who for almost a decade was Henry VIII's chief minister, his propagandist, his press officer, if you like, and his marriage broker as well. In my book, this is what T 
Thomas More says about Thomas Cromwell. Lock Cromwell in a deep dungeon in the morning, and when you come back that night, he'll be sitting on a plush, a plush cushion, eating lark's tongues, <laughs> and all the jailers will owe him money. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thomas Cromwell's political career is extremely well documented, but his private life is almost entirely off the record. And much of his early life is a mystery. He was born in Putney, and his father was a brewer and a blacksmith. Now, the Cromwell family were so obscure that we wouldn't know anything about the circumstances of his early life at all if it weren't for the wonder of the legal records, because his father, Walter, was always in the local courts. He was a drunk. Um, uh, there were charges of assault, of drunkenness. There were all sorts of rancorous civil disputes. Walter Cromwell was the neighbour from hell. And every half year at the Assize of Ale, he was fined sixpence without fail for um, selling substandard beer. Obviously, the penalty acted as no kind of a deterrent to him. Um, Perhaps not surprisingly, Thomas Cromwell had barely reached adulthood. He was 15 years old, about, when he got himself out of this setup. He ran away from home, crossed the Channel, and became a mercenary in the French army. And then he pops up in northern Italy as a merchant banker. This attracted me. He might have been the first boy ever to run away from home in order to become a merchant banker. Mm. Uh, and he sighted in Florence, in Venice, Rome, and then he crops up in Antwerp and at the cloth fairs in northern Europe, he's trading in wool, comes home to London, takes to the law and joins Gray's Inn. And he also went to work for Cardinal Wolsey, who was Lord Chancellor and was also Papal Legate and Archbishop of York, who was a great power in England at that time, next to the King. And some said greater than the King. This was the 1520s, and what was looming up in the decade ahead, though no one could foresee it, was a huge transfer of wealth, landed wealth, from the Church to the King. Now, the dissolution of the monasteries, which was so central to Henry's revenue raising, and which changed the face of England, actually began, though people don't think of this, it began before the Reformation. It began under Cardinal Wolsey, who was as good a son of, of the papacy as you would find. And it began with the Pope's permission. Wolsey... Um, dissolved 29 monasteries and funneled the proceeds into founding Cardinal College at Oxford, which is now Christ Church. And Cromwell did the legal work. It became his speciality. So later, when it occurred to Cromwell and to Henry that the church owned about a third of, of the landed wealth of England, and it was there for the taking. Cromwell had all the expertise ready and waiting. 
Sometimes historians have, charged, have, have, have pictured Cromwell as a sort of great administrator, but he was actually much more than that. He was a great innovator. He was a man with a radical heart. And I have to say, he was not particularly a friend to the legal profession or its income. Uh, he was an advocate of modernization and simplification of the law. And the group of men around him came up with a plan in the, the 1530s uh, for the registration of land. And the plan was for county registers. Would have been a terrible blow to the income of conveyances, mm -hmm. who of course reveled in the complexities of unregistered title. Um, and it would have completely changed our land law. 1925 would have happened 500 years earlier. Um, he also came up with a plan to abolish entail, which what if you think about it, have had the gravest effect on the English novel because the plot of Pride and Prejudice would have been a non-starter and Jane Austen would have had to find some other legal entanglement to base her fiction around. But it didn't happen. Land registration didn't happen. The abolition of entail didn't happen. Uh, interests were too entrenched. His radical poor law didn't happen. And of course his own career was cut short. In no uncertain terms, in 1540, when Henry turned against him and sent him to the scaffold. But for the legally minded, his, his career is a wonderful reflection of what might have been. Quite apart from his legal, um, uh, uh, his, his, his dealings with the law and being himself a lawyer, he also is, of course, one of the great pantomime villains of English history. Uh, in fiction and in drama, he's inevitably caricatured, and he lurks in the wings, wrapped in a black cloak, and, and hitting, um, thinking up Machiavellian plots. And I became aware that his own story had never really been told, and that's why I set up the novel from his point of view, because you change the point of view and just everything looks different. Well, Wolf Hall is about many more issues than the clash between Thomas Cromwell and Thomas More. But I did think that Robert Bolt's play, A Man for All Seasons, had held sway long enough and it was time for an alternative version. Uh, Thomas Cromwell was a very clever man he had a mind that was adroit and original. And he was one of those people, rare in any age, who can see the big picture, but who can also nail down the details and actually make things happen in the real world. In my novel, he isn't a, a villain. He's an ambitious man, in an age when ambition was a dirty word. And he's making his way in a world where he was born with almost every possible disadvantage. Uh, and Wolf Hall, the first of two novels, is about his rise and rise. And it takes him from his youth through his wars and years and his move into the king's service. 
He becomes the king's secretary and he uses that position to build a power base. He becomes master of the roles and that's where Wolf Hall leaves him, living partly at the Rolls House on Chancery Lane and poised on the cusp of even greater success. And the book builds up to its climax with the trial and death of Thomas More, who was of course a lawyer himself and a former Lord Chancellor. Now before I came to look into it myself, I thought the trial of Thomas More was very well documented because other people seemed to know all about it. But when I, when I teased away at it, I found out that actually what we do know of what happened to Thomas More in the July of 1535 is patched together from accounts after the event. One of the most influential, written by Moore's son-in-law, William Roper, who wasn't actually at the trial. And so I found it beyond me, because I think the residual lawyer in me constrains me to a kind of honesty. I found it beyond me to construct for my reader a whole fictitious trial. So. I decided to dip in and out of it and in fact concentrate on the bits that one can envisage and make some kind of sense of. It's become axiomatic that the trial of Thomas More swung on an act of perjury by Richard Rich, who was a Solicitor General. But it is actually quite hard to pin down what really happened. I was struck by the way Moore argued in court, always like a lawyer. And if he hadn't been representing himself and he'd had a defence counsel and if it had been me, I would have said, Thomas, don't do that. Argue like a man, not a lawyer. And he argued, of course, in this way. I did not say this, but if I did say it, I did not mean by it what you say I meant by it. And I wondered, of course, how that stood with the jury, and if in the end it was talking like a lawyer that did for him. At the trial, Richard Rich, the Solicitor General, gave an account of a conversation held between himself and Thomas More at the Tower of London. And this was a crucial conversation in which Thomas More had seemed to deny the authority of Parliament to proclaim Henry VIII head of the English Church because, More said, that was a spiritual jurisdiction. It was out of this realm. The jurisdiction lay with Rome. And that sentiment, with a little work, could be twisted into treason. And when Richard Rich brought this point out in court, Thomas More mounted an extraordinary personal attack on him. Uh, Richard Rich had been a wild boy, and Thomas More thought it right to point this out and attack his character, but he seems not to have done him any good. Now, Cromwell, to be sure, had a hand-picked the jury. They were London burgesses, at least one of them, John Parnell, had a legal dispute with Thomas More running back years. Mm -hmm. um, 
and others belong to the London evangelical community, the nascent Protestant community. And this was a group of men and women who, when Thomas More was Lord Chancellor, he borne down on very hard as a heretic hunter. Um, we know about the heretics that Thomas More caused to be burned, but there is a, a story behind that of the people he imprisoned socially, uh, solely on suspicion, whose businesses he ruined, whose health broke while they were in prison. And there are a great many quiet tragedies lurking in the wings. Not then a jury disposed to him. And it has to be said that for Cromwell, having more in court was a defeat. He had no interest in persecuting more to his death. What he had wanted and had been trying to obtain for months was a change of mind. He wanted Thomas More to change his mind, swear the oath, accepting Henry as head of the English church. It would have been a huge propaganda coup to flourish in the face of all Europe. But since More was sticking with the Pope, it became a compelling political necessity that he should be tried and found guilty. And this is what I show in the closing stages of my book. Necessity closing in. More claimed that he couldn't be guilty because he hadn't spoken against the king's authority. And this silence, he believed, should secure him from prosecution. I'm sure he knew that in the real world this ploy was never going to work. I will read you just a little bit of the final chapter in the novel. Um, in this narrative, when I refer to he, that simply is Thomas Cromwell. The camera is always on his shoulder. We're always looking through his eyes. On the evening of Moore's death, the weather clears and he walks in the garden with Rafe Sadler and his nephew Richard. The sun shows itself, a silver haze between rags of cloud. The beaten down herb beds are scentless and a skittish wind pulls at their clothes, hitting the backs of their ne necks and then veering around to slap their faces. Rafe Sadler says, it's like being at sea. They walk at either side of him and close as if there were danger from whales, pirates and mermaids. It is five days since the trial. Since then, much business has supervened, but they cannot help rehearse its events, trading with each other, the pictures in their heads, the Attorney General jotting a last note on the indictment, more sniggering when some clerk made a slip in his Latin, and the cold, smooth faces of the Berlins, father and son, on the judge's bench. Moore had never raised his voice. He sat in the chair provided for him, attentive, head tipped a little to the left, picking away at his sleeve. So, 
Richard Rich's surprise when Moore turned on him was visible. He'd taken a step backwards and steadied himself against a table. I know you of old, Rich, Moore said. Why would I open my mind to you? Moore on his feet, his voice dripping contempt. I have known you since your youth. A gamer and a dicer. Of no commendable fame, even in your own house. By St. Julian, Justice Fitzjamed had exclaimed. It was ever his oath, and under his breath to him, Cromwell. What will more gain by this? The jury hadn't liked it. You never know what a jury will like. They took more sudden animation to be shock, and guilt at being confronted with his own words. For sure they all knew Rich's reputation. But are not drinking, dice and fighting more natural in a young man on the whole than fasting, beads and self-flagellation? It was the Duke of Norfolk who cut in on more, his voice dry. Leave aside the man's character. What do you say to the matter in hand? Did you speak those words? Was it then that Master Moore played a trick too many? He pulled himself together, hauling his slipping gown onto his shoulder. The gown secured, he paused. He calmed himself, he fitted one fist into the other. I did not say what Rich alleges. Or, if I did say it, I did not mean it with malice, and therefore I am clear under the statute. It watched an expression of derision across John Parnell's face. There's nothing harder than a London Burgess who thinks he's being played for a fool. Hmm. Any of the lawyers could have put the jury right. It's just how we argue. But they don't want a lawyer's argument. They want the truth. Did you say it or didn't you? George Boleyn leans forward. Can the prisoner let us have his own version of the conversation? Moore turns, smiling, as if to say, a good point there, young Master George. I made no note of it, he says. I had no writing materials, you see. They had already taken them away. For if you remember, my Lord Rockford, that was the very reason Rich came to me in the first place, to remove from me the means of recording. And he had paused again and looked at the jury as if expecting applause. And they looked back, faces like stones. Was that the turning point? They might have trusted more, being as he was, Lord Chancellor at one time and Richard Rich, as everybody knows, such a waster. You never know what a jury will think. Though when he had convened them, of course, he had been persuasive. He'd spoken with them that morning. I don't know what his defence is, but I don't hold out hope we'll be finished by noon. I hope you all had a good breakfast. When you retire, you must take your time, of course. But if you were gone more than 20 minutes by my reckoning, I will come in to see how you do, to put you out of doubt. 
on any point of law. Fifteen minutes was all they needed. Now, this evening in the garden, July the 6th, he looks up at the sky, feeling a change in the air, a damp drift like autumn. The interlude of feeble sun is over. Clouds drift and mass in towers and battlements, blowing in from Essex, stacking up over the city, driven by the wind across the broad soaked fields, across the sodden pasture lands and swollen rivers, across the dripping forests of the west and out over the sea to Ireland. His nephew Richard retrieves his hat from a lavender bed, knocks droplets from it, swearing softly. Spatter of rain hits their faces. Time to go in, he says. I have letters to write. They hurry in. The wind bangs a door behind them. Rafe Sadler takes his arm. He says, This silence of Thomas More's never really was silence, was it? It was loud with his treason. It was quibbling, as far as quibbles would serve him. It was demurs and cavils, suave ambiguities. It was fear of plain words, or the assertion that plain words pervert themselves. Moore's dictionary against our dictionary. You can have a silence full of words. A lute retains in its bowl the notes it has played. The viol in its strings holds a concord. A shriveled petal can hold its scent. A prayer can rattle with curses. An empty house, when the owners have gone out, can still be loud with ghosts. I shall put myself down now and ask if there are any questions. <laughs> That was a marvellous, marvellous lecture, Hilary, spellbinding. Thank you so much. Hilary has very kindly said that she will take some questions. We, I think we could take about 20 minutes. So I'd like to ask people, I'll call you, there are microphones coming around. Um, and I'd like to ask you, first of all, to, to say who you are, and secondly, to see if you can keep your question reasonably concise. This lady in the front. Hello. I'm I'm Nikki Burton. Um, I've just read Walpole, which I enjoyed very much. And I'd love to know why you stopped at the point you stopped. Well, it's, it's interesting. I don't know if you could hear at the back, but this lady is asking, why does Wolf Hall stop where it does? Now, it, when I began work, I was thinking I'd write one book. Um, the complexities of it hadn't quite come home to me at that stage. And then, as I worked through the book, I realized something that is kind of a gift, really, to a historical novelist. Not a certainty, but a probability. Um, a possibility. Let's take it no higher. That Thomas Moore and Thomas Cromwell could have met quite early in life. There was this point what you're always trying to do in a historical novel is bring your characters together in some unembarrassing way. 
Um, you don't want people saying, Thomas Cromwell, have you met Thomas More? Or, there goes the Lord Chancellor. And, of course, if you can find something that seems to have slipped by the record and make it plausible. And it's true that when Thomas More was 14 years old, before he went to Oxford, he was a page in the Archbishop of Canterbury's household at Lambeth Palace. Uh, Thomas Cromwell would then be about seven years old. And his uncle John was a cook down below in the kitchens at Lambeth Palace. And I thought, if you come out of a disorderly menage like the Cromwell household at Putney, and you are um, a, a, a hungry, greedy, cunning, and self-sufficient little boy what do you do you get yourself along the river to your uncle who's a cook and I make them meet not in the oppositional way that you might think um, not in any obvious way but with a conversation that sticks in Thomas Cromwell's mind and infuses him with a sense of nostalgia because it wasn't a, quite a proper conversation they went past each other, and Moore has left him with a sense of puzzlement. And then in my book, when it, you come to the closing stages and Moore is in the tower, Cromwell is trying to persuade him to take the oath and save his life, go back to his family. And suddenly the conversation clicks with him, suddenly makes sense. And he recalls it to Moore with a great sense of excitement. And Moore doesn't remember it at all. Mm. He never remembers that they have seen each other before they were adults and, in a sense, locked in, in opposition on different sides of the religious divide, for sure. I began to get a sense, as I thought of the consequences of such a possible meeting, of the emotional curve of the book. You know, there are the historical events that march on, and then the story has an arc of its own. And of course, I began to realize the more I studied Thomas More's accounts of his incarceration, that what lay between him and Thomas Cromwell, there's an emotional hinterland here for Thomas Cromwell for more to end the way he did, it wasn't simply a political fact that had to be grappled with. I think it was an emotional fact as well, because it was the end of a long relationship that had not been the happiest ones, but uh, one but still had been an important part of his life. And I thought, there is a rising curve here, and that is the place to end the book, because go past that, and it becomes one damn thing after another. And I thought that this story was so intriguing and I became so interested by matching up, up the historical record against our fictions of Thomas More um, that I thought, now that is the place to end and no further. So the book ends on the, the night of Thomas More's execution. It was a notoriously rainy summer and somehow when you think of a hero and saint coming to his end, 
You never think of it being in, in a grey London drizzle, but that was the fact of the matter. And Henry, having executed his former advisor and close friend, did what Henry did. He did his packing for his summer holidays. So the book ends with Thomas Cromwell planning out the king's itinerary for the months from July through into the early autumn, the hunting season, and the king's going down to West Country. And one of the places he stops is going to be Wolf Hall in Wiltshire, which it was the Seymour family house. And the Seymours, of course, were the family of, of Henry's third wife. Not a player at the moment, or only a very marginal one, but soon to become one. So the book ends on that emotional climax of Moore's death, and, and with this pointer to the future, that what we think is now established, the king's second marriage, is going to be undone in the book that's to come. I wonder if I can, while well, people are thinking of their question, if I can slip a, abuse the chair and slip a little question in. You, you said once that, I think in a recent interview actually, that you thought that um, novelists in a sense took over when, where biographers left off, that there's a sort of way in which a historical novel has more license. And today you've been talking to us about the limits of that license as you interpret them in terms of, of evidence. Um, I wanted to ask a slightly different question, which also I think comes up with this sort of novel and with biography, which is the experience of sort of recreating somebody and therefore living with them in quite an intense way over a period of time, which you must have done with Cromwell. I mean, he's a very powerful character. He's obviously, he's incredibly alive to the reader, so he must have been completely alive to you. How do you maintain that relationship I mean in the sense that Richard Holmes the biography I think as biographer has written very interestingly about the need to in some sense keep a sense of separation between oneself and one subject mm. is that something you think about in the creative process well I think you do make a certain number of decisions before you begin at least that's the theory for a novelist anyway that you decide what tense you're going to write in, where the viewpoint is going to be, is it going to be a first-person or a third-person narrative. Um, you're, you're supposed to have all these in contemplation and then bearing them in mind, one day in a cool and collective frame of mind, you sit down to write. But it wasn't like that with Wolf Hall. Mm. Um, I was really taking a holiday when I began the book. I was working on another novel, and a, a, a more, much more contemporary novel, and I got a little bit stuck. And I thought, I'll take a day off and I'll see what Wolf Hall sounds like. Because with a historical novel, that's always the intriguing thing. How is it going to sound? How will the characters speak to each other? And. So in pursuit of my holiday, I sat down and wrote a scene. And it begins with Thomas Cromwell hearing the words, so now get up. And he's lying on the floor, he's covered in blood. And his father, the violent, alcoholic, disputatious blacksmith, 
is standing over him, preparatory to kicking him. And the boy is thinking, one blow properly placed could kill me now. And I thought, what have I done, what have I done? Because this is exactly what Cromwell's last moments on earth must have been like. His execution, according to um, John Fox in, in Acts and Monuments, his execution was terribly bundled. And the Acts were supposed to be the merciful way out, but Cromwell must have had plenty of time to know I am dying and to think one blow could kill me now. And suddenly, you see, in a sense, you've done it. You have the beginning and you have the end. And then you have the five years, six, seven years it's going to take you to fill in the middle. But what had happened was when, when I saw the boy on the floor, actually what I saw was his father's boot. And, and I realized that the, the twine, the stitching of his boot had sprung away and there was a, a knot in it. And this is what had opened the cut on the boy's eyebrow and he's thinking and the next thing is my father is going to blame me for the damage to his boot which he sustained in kicking me and we therefore know he's been there many times before but my viewpoint was right inside my character I was looking up through his eyes as best he could see which wasn't much and so all those questions were answered what is it going to sound like? I'd heard the soundtrack in his head. What tense am I going to write it in? Obviously the present tense, because it's unfolding before me, like um, a cinema film. And at that moment, Cromwell became forever he. So the viewpoint of the book, although it is third person, it's also extraordinarily intimate, mm. in that you're always from then on looking through his eyes. And that closeness never let me go. Mm. But if I could tell people how to do it, I would bottle it and sell it. <laughs> but I, I, I suppose you you know you know that that terribly grim Holbein image of Cromwell sitting it's the only image we have in him sitting with his back to the wall and it looks as if Holbein has pushed the furniture against him to keep him sitting down because Cromwell was a notoriously energetic man and uh, he is wearing on his face an expression of faint hostility and flat scepticism and he's clutching a piece of paper like that as if it were an offensive weapon mm -hmm. he's holding it not like a piece of paper but like a killing knife as I say and sometimes when I was writing I would sit there and I could feel that expression mm -hmm. growing on my face <laughs> I became an increasingly scary person <laughs> as, as the writing went on <laughs> And I have many years to live with Cromwell yet. It's a gentleman at the back, yeah. What strikes me most, both in your talk and in your answer to the questions, is the extraordinary detail that um, is at your command. I mean, just to give three brief examples, you know, the, the summer weather, the weather that summer when Moore died, 
what uh, Cromwell's father got up to, the legal records, what his uncle did. I mean, and, and then you mentioned in your talk this extraordinary business about, you know, whether meetings could have happened, whether someone was actually in Norfolk or not. I mean, yeah. you make Walter Scott look thoroughly lazy <laughs> um, in terms of this extraordinary command of detail. I mean, how long did all this research take before you started writing, uh, if, if that's the way you did it? And when did you know when to stop? Because, I mean, um, I, I, you make David Starkey and young Henry and, and his ex I mean, I'm... Well, as I said, personal details about Cromwell are so scant, and details of his early life are so scant, that when you've got one, you work it for all it's worth. Um, and there may actually be less here than meets the eye. Mm. Uh, and I think it's actually, we're in the realms of the indiscoverable here. I don't think anyone's going to turn up Thomas Cromwell's personal journal with the details of his love life. And I think, you know, an important part of it is knowing when is a question closed? When can you say, we'll never find out any more about this? And... You, you know, we, we have to, um, from here, we are licensed to imagine. And you think you can say where that point is. But then, life has a way of defeating you. Um, what's preoccupying me at the moment, I've known from one very slight um, reference in, in the in the records of, of Cheshire, actually, that it's possible that Thomas Cromwell had an illegitimate daughter called Jane, and it was just said that she met, um, she married a gentleman of Cheshire. And it's 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 a bad source. It's not not very precise at all. But I thought, well, an illegitimate daughter. This is a big deal because who was her mother? Um, Cromwell was widowed quite young. He didn't marry again. And both his daughters died very young. And so a daughter turning up, perhaps, is a big deal. So I worked a careful story about Jane Cromwell into Wolf Hall, only to get an email last week from a researcher in Cheshire saying... Do you know anything about Jane Cromwell? Because I've dis I think I know who she married. And of course, if you ever want to press the delete button, it's <laughs> then. So there's always the possibility of further data undoing you, because I'm stuck with the story, as I have it in Wolf Hall. And it's going to cause me an excruciating dilemma as to how to play that into my next book. The way I research is to get a broad general outline so I know where I'm going. And I have picked up all the social detail, all the ephemera uh, that might flesh out a scene. Um, what the, the, the Russians so usefully call the realia, the, the details of everyday life, so that I can see it and hear it and be, as it were, physically present in the scene. But I don't inform myself of all the political twists and turns till I'm ready to write the scene. 
I don't want to put the dead hand of hindsight on it. So my method really is, is to, to save the really detailed work until I'm ready to write a scene. And I know roughly where I want to get. And then sometimes you set the characters talking. You don't know how you're going to get to the end point, but they do it for you. Or at least that's the novelist's mystical art. That's how it appears. As for when you stop researching, I think the example uh, that I've just given shows that you can really never afford to. I spent about five years on Wolf Hall, um, but I'm not someone who starts at chapter one and writes steadily onwards. If I got a flash of an idea about something, an idea for a conversation, or just some piquant detail, I, I would write it down ready for that scene when it came. And I, I really put my books together, whether they're contemporary or historical novels, rather like a jigsaw. You know, you're always left with, with, with one piece and you don't know where it goes. Uh, but to me, what I'm trying to do is not behave like a historian. My characters don't know the ends of their own stories. They can't point the moral and adorn the tale. Uh, they can't resolve to do it better next time or be more sensible or take their decisions on more logical ground. They're walking in the dark and they are always proceeding on the basis of incomplete information, walking into their futures. And I think what I have to do, and what I have to bear in mind when researching, is in a sense to take my hands off, not to know too much, not to dot all the I's and cross the T's before I start writing. Otherwise you lose that sense of them being alive and it being all to play for all over again. Are you happy to take one more? Yes, sure. Um, I'm reading Wolf Hall, is this on? I'm reading Wolf Hall at the moment and I am thrilled, increasingly thrilled by uh, Robert Bolt being knocked off his perch. And um, I wondered, hearing you say, you know, that, that A Man Four Seasons is kind of in your mind, uh, thought its time had come. Because as I'm reading it, I think it's a great play, or at least I yes. it's a film, mm. course, but it, you know, it's a marvellous uh, thing. And uh, when I'm, as I'm reading the, your work on Cromwell, I'm thinking, yes, and it always troubled me. But it's a marvellous play about the guy who's on the wrong side. Uh, and I wondered to what it seems that was that your motivation? Is that what interested you? How did you come to Cromwell? Was it uh, it's time that uh, Mount Four Seasons uh, was uh, you know that, that story was looked at from another side? And if it is, uh, to what extent is that a problem? Kind of coming at a historical story with a, with a you know with a contemporary uh, debate in mind or a, or a, a programmatic kind of point to make? Well, does that become a problem when you're then trying to tell a very detailed character study? I think it, it, it's um, it's a kind of secondary consideration. It, it cracked up on me when I was part way through the book um, because I didn't go into the book with my mind made up about Thomas More or even my mind made up about Thomas Cromwell or any of the characters. But I did gradually realise that I put myself into a cockpit with this very, very 
influential interpretation. Um, A Man for All Seasons is, as you say, a wonderful play, and it turned into a tremendous film, and it has huge persuasive dramatic force. Too persuasive for my liking, because I don't think it's particularly good history. I am not, again, against Thomas More. It's just that as a cradle Catholic, I felt it was okay for me to assail him. Uh, as far as I was concerned, you know, I'd grown up with Thomas More as the saint in the stained glass window. And I'm a bit of a contrarian, so if you tell me someone's a saint, I'll go looking straight away for their feet of clay. And it's not difficult to find them in Thomas More's case. Um, I think people have... I think this aspect of Wolf Hall has aroused more, more controversy than any other aspect among the historians who have been kind enough to comment on it, which shows that historians divide on ideological lines. Um, They're not divided about the facts. They're divided as to whether they think um, the Reformation was a good thing or not, and basically comes down to people's own religious positions very often. It's a bit disillusioning, really. I would have thought we could argue on other grounds, but there you are. What I feel is this. When I wrote my book about the French Revolution, one perceptive critic says, the French Revolution is a theatre, and for the moment, a place of greater safety is playing there. And that captured my sense exactly of, of how the historical novelist or dramatist is situated vis-a-vis the historians and the historical record. Well, the reign of Henry VIII is a theatre, and for two generations, a man for all seasons has been playing, and at the moment, Wolf Hall is playing, mm. and I'm sure that a man for all seasons will be back. Mm-hmm. Um, you see, I always have to remind people that my proposing a version does not abolish previous versions. It sets a a set of propositions alongside those propositions which we already have it holds them up and says there you are let's argue about it so the book as every historical novel I think is written to be placed within gigantic inverted commas and I suppose I simply began by saying it is as if Thomas More is the villain of this piece, and for once, Thomas Cromwell is the hero. Thank you. Hilary, thank you so much. I think we should call things... I can see other questions around around the room, but I am going to uh, call call proceedings to a close here. Reiterating my thanks, Hilary, when when you agreed to come back here, we were so excited about this. I hadn't realised, though, at the time... what an appropriate geographical spot the LSE is with Chancery Lane up the road and Thomas More commemorated not in a stained glass window but I'm afraid in one of the ugliest buildings in London just beyond our boundaries (laughs) you've given us a marvellous evening we are so delighted you you came back thank you very much and I'm sure everyone wants to join you